to you for free access to all the podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Thomas Kleiner Brockhoff. Thomas Kleiner Brockhoff is Vice President of the German Marshall Fund of the United States, where he oversees the organization's activities in Germany and leads the Europe program. Prior to that, he served as an advisor to Joachim Gauck, the President of Germany, and before that, he has also worked at the Washington Bureau Chief of Die Zeit. Thomas, I like this conversation, this podcast, to be broken down into three broad areas, if I may one domestic, one European, and one transatlantic. Um, so first of all, let's cut to the chase on the domestic front. Um, Angela Merkel won quite an impressive fourth uh, term of office as Chancellor a few weeks ago. She's busy building a coalition. Uh, the commentary out there seemed divided about whether this was actually a success for her in terms of getting a fourth term, or whether she's actually a much more weakened uh, political personality. What is your take? How has she seen domestically in terms of her, uh, her leadership and her, her political weight? Clearly, a fourth term is not the first term. You were in office 12 years. Uh, the uh, election result, while uh, bringing her back to office, was not that impressive. She is weakened, and she has a complicated coalition negotiation in front of her. But um, the electorates have been either agnostic or skeptical of something that we call the Jamaica Coalition of Greens Free market liberals and conservatives. Uh, there's no precedent to it. There's no history. There is nothing that in coalition building, as opposed to uh, winner-take-all system, coalition building needs something that you would call a political project, an idea of what you want to do together other than uh, get the post of government. Uh, and that has been unclear for this combination of parties because there's no history. Now in the last few weeks as they're as they're starting to talk, this idea is beginning to take shape and that is actually an interesting development of German politics. So she's still seen therefore domestically as, as a leader. I mean, I want, from a European perspective or an external perspective, one looks at the German political scene and one doesn't seem, one does not see very many political heavyweights. So she kind of stands above the rest of the political crowd, is that still a fair comment? I think on foreign policy that will certainly be the case, uh, but it is clear a fourth term will be the last term, and therefore it will be, it will be accompanied by a conversation about succession. That is a natural process, uh, and it certainly will influence her standing and her position. She will not be the unchallenged uh, Chancellor that she was in the, in the second and third term. Okay, well in terms of that, well, uh, let's assume there'll be at some point quite soon, I presume, a coalition put together along the lines you're describing. Uh, in terms of her margin of maneuver when it comes to acting on the European scene, uh, to what extent will this coalition, I know it's not confirmed yet, be a, be a constraint, an impediment to her doing exactly what she would like to do in terms of uh, running Europe, basically? In, in terms of Europe, this will be this is the one area where it is very hard to see what the compromise between these three groups actually is. Because you have a set of actors uh, that I would call the group or the parties of no. And there's a set of actors, uh, one party that I would uh, call the party of yes. And then there is the chancellor as the, the, the ultimate incrementalist overseeing uh, overseeing these forces, and it is hard to see how, especially on Euro governance and Euro governance reform, they can strike a compromise between those 
who, uh, who will want to see something that uh, is referred to as transfer union, which means that there is a much deeper integration, including of financial flows within the Eurozone. And those who see the Eurozone uh, as uh, an instrument as is, with, uh, with no bailout clauses and no uh, financial transfer uh, beyond what we see today. Okay, well, alongside the re-election of Angela Merkel, this was the election of Emmanuel Macron a few months ago in France, and there's much talk here in Brussels, uh, at least, of the, the, the re-energizing of the famous Franco-German axis, uh, Franco-German engine, whatever metaphor you want to use. Do you see that, that engine being reinvigorated on the back of the election of Macron and the re-election of Merkel? First of all, you'd have to say there is Macron. Uh, when you look at back at the last four or five years, uh, excluding sort of an initial phase of uh, the previous president Hollande, there was a very quiet and very um, a very passive uh, phase of the Franco-German engine. Not much of an engine at all. I actually looked at it from inside the tent and, and, and saw more compensation mechanisms at work than actual progress being made. When you were working for President Black. When I was okay. working for the President. Okay. Um, so the, 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 the view from Berlin was that any involvement, any activity, any suggestion, any prodding, any, anything at all would be detrimental to on the French scene. Therefore, the policy that was, uh, that was constructed w w had two words, shut up, really? <laughs> is do, do, not, do not get engaged on French domestic, uh, you know, the question of reform in France. That has completely changed with the emergence of Emmanuel Macron. So uh, the, the decisive factor is not in Berlin, it is in Paris. The question now becomes how adaptable, how much has sort of Berlin gotten used to a policy of passivity, how much is it actually uh, able to uh, respond to the machine gun fire of proposals included in the, uh, in the uh, of ideas, of, of, rev of seemingly revolutionary ideas uh, coming, putting, from Paris. coming from Paris, are they actually willing to take that step? Incrementalist Chancellor, she is not the lady of grand projects. Right. She is the lady of tinkering and solving problems. So there you see, I think, a very different method of governing. Um, but you've also seen in her an extremely adaptable Chancellor. So right. adaptable to the character of her partners. I think the overall situation is quite clear. The Federal Republic of Germany has not seen a strategically as volatile situation as we have in the past few years. We're coming from a moment, uh, the 1990s moment, uh, the end of history moment. There was a German equivalent to that idea of the end of history. Uh, as a quote by then Defense Minister Volker Ruhr in 1992 who said, uh, where Germany is encircled by friends. <laughs> that is the end of history thing. There is nothing left to do, really. Right. Uh, well, look at it today. We have a revisionist Russia. We have a, a nationalist of, of, 
want to be authoritarian Poland. We have a strongman in Turkey. Uh, we have Hungary. We have uh, Britain that left the European Union, in the words of the Chancellor, an unreliable United States. Mm -hmm. And we were one election away, the election in France, from what some people would say a debate about a serious realignment in Europe, comparable to 1814-50 right. or 1945-49. And the situation was that Germany was not in charge of its own strategic future. That a 39-year-old who was dependent on a 39-year-old man with a movement, not even a traditional party, in a neighboring country. So the idea of not being in charge of your strategic future and, be, and having bought time in your key strategic project, which is the European Union, uh, in the election of Emmanuel Macron, gives him just as much leverage over Germany as he needs Germany, and Germany has leverage over him. So this is a marriage of sorts that we're looking at, uh, and I hope sort of all the tinkerers in, in, in Berlin uh, understand the gravity of uh, of that strategic situation. Okay, well, before we move on to the final part on China 90, one final question in this part of the, of the podcast, Thomas, about the, the European dimension of Germany. As you know, there are many narratives out there about Germany's role in, in Europe. It is by far the most powerful economic uh, force in Europe. Clearly, it leads Europe but reluctantly. Narrative one, it leads Europe uh, not at all reluctantly. It knows exactly what it wants and wants everybody else to do what it says. It leads Europe in tandem with the with the French, but they're kind of in the driving seat. You're saying now that it could lead Europe with the French, but the French are in the driving seat. Or maybe a final, final narrative, which is also uh, the, the days of you know German hegemony or Franco-German hegemony in Europe are slightly over, and other member states are, are saying that enough already. We want to be part of the decision-making process. Maybe I missed out maybe other narratives. Which one would you mostly uh, keen to subscribe to? This is a typically European type of question. This is having six different options of <laughs> yes. one narrative. Look, I, I, I don't think Germany can lead Europe. It has a, it, it's, it, it's, a it neighbor, its neighbors don't want it to, and Germany understands that that is the case. Now, there are elements on which so, so in, in leadership post World War II is something that Germans aren't used to. And when they have to take leadership, they're, as you said, reluctant. And they also sometimes, my sense is that, that for Germany is true what is true for others in Europe. We live in national conversation. We tend to think what we think needs to be shared by others and is shared by others. Or our debate is the mirror image of somebody else's. It ain't. Uh, we know too little of those debates, and that is why uh, the impression, and rightly so, in some areas of Eurozone policy or, or, or refugee policy emerges, that the Germans know what they want and know how, how, to, uh, how to get to it and uh, talk a good game about reluctance, but aren't reluctant at all. <laughs> so there is a, a, a sense of that there, we're practicing this stuff. So the idea that France is back as a, in a strong leadership role is actually a relief, is actually a, a, an option, an opportunity to be taken seriously. But you might still be right that it's not enough. But without it, nothing happens. Right. Well, let's move on to transatlantic. 
you have recently, very recently, co-authored with uh, colleagues uh, a GMF pamphlet called In Spite of It All America, a Transatlantic Manifesto in Times of Donald Trump, a German perspective. And you say, amongst many interesting comments in, the, in this paper, German policy now requires something that it did not need before, a US strategy. What is this new US strategy that Germany needs? Well, first of all, there's a reason for that statement. And the reason is this. The post-war Germany is a product of the, of the uh, post-war order, of the liberal international order. It, it had, it had, only the liberal international order has sort of solved the German problem uh, of being too big for Europe and too small to run it. We just discussed this, uh, 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 this challenge. Uh, the idea that a rules-based international order, institutions, alliances, uh, treaties, long-term arrangements uh, has been able to put the German position at peace with its neighbors and at peace with the world, uh, peace and affluence at the same time. We haven't had that. Freedom, peace, and affluence. It comes along Donald Trump, who, uh, who wants none of institutions, who is reluctant of NATO, is critical of the EU, doesn't like the WTO, doesn't like institutions, sees institutions as constraints, sees allies as, as, as one-off partners, uh, has a different, uh, has a very different attitude of what an alliance is. seems to be he's more, uh, you know, rather than a, than a, a self-confident equal partner, uh, allies are vassals to him. Uh, so this creates a, for the first time since World War II, creates a conflict of a, of a fundamental interest between the United States and Germany. Germany is a fundamentally status quo power. Donald Trump wants America to be a revisionist power in, in, this, in this sense. Therefore, we don't know how successful he will be, so we don't know how long this period of American policy will last. But as long as it lasts, we will need to have a strategy that does take that into account and differentiates, differentiates between policy areas and what you can do with him, what you have to do without him, what you have to do against him, and how you have to think beyond him. Well, you say that exactly this kind of pragmatic approach in the short term in Germany and quotes from your paper. And must learn to distinguish between the problems that are solvable, those that are unsolvable, and those that in between, those in between that require pragmatic management. Could you briefly give an example of, of each? So where where are the stars aligned? Where are the problems that are solvable between Germany and the US? Let me start with those that I, I think are unsolvable. Okay. If you go to the heart of the populist agenda, it's going to be very hard to cooperate with Don. He, here he has to deliver to, uh, to his, his constituency, and those are, to me, trade policy and refugee and migration policy. Let me start with the latter. We need to rethink and, and recharge the international system of, for, for refugees resettlement, uh, in, in the Geneva system. Mm -hmm. uh, to, we need to adapt it to the modern times. Unthinkable without the United States, mm -hmm. but also unthinkable with Trump's United States. A person who wants to build a wall will not do Africa policy with the, with the European Union or with Germany. I, I wouldn't even want to touch it. We have to do it alone. We can't do it with Donald Trump. Second, trade. 
Uh, I do not, as a European citizen, since trade is not a, a national prerogative, but it is a Brussels prerogative, as a European citizen, I don't want to be a guinea pig, guinea pig for uh, the attempt to negotiate a real treaty, because all treaties, as we learned from Donald Trump, that the United States entered into are either, either bad, worse, or the worst ever. I don't want to be the partner in a good treaty. So therefore, uh, therefore, I see very little option for reviving TTIP, uh, even in a, in a, in a slimmed-down version as a Trump tip, uh, or some version of, of, of that. He will, he will, let's wait for NAFTA to play out to see the rationale. So that, that's, to me, the core populist. So TTIP is dead. To me, well, I would put it in the deep freezer. Right. Uh, there is elements of trade policy that you will be able to do with each other. Uh, China, cooperation on China will be one of them. There will be several others. But I don't see that big deal. Uh, I, I think it's even detrimental to try negotiating it because failure is, is more hurtful and it has more ripple effects than putting it into the deep freezer. Okay. On the other extreme of, of, of the spectrum would be security. Now, Donald Trump has reluctantly signed on to an institution called NATO <laughs> uh, and its provisions, uh, but as we, uh, nothing has been cut, nothing has been reversed, nothing has been changed. Europe as such, all NATO members, and especially Germany, have a huge interest in all things security. Uh, therefore, uh, I think they, these things will need to go ahead uh, now that Donald Trump has uh, taken a position that is different from the non-position he took when visiting Brussels. Uh, and Germany needs to think hard about its own commitments. Cooperating with Donald Trump and cooperating with our NATO partners also means looking at one's own commitments. And I'm talking about 2%. Yeah. Well, a final question then, Thomas. Um, Although the famous pamphlet is subtitled A German Perspective, it seems to me uh, in the text, the body of the text, you are not sure they're interchangeable, but Germany and the European Union are uh, kind of used in, uh, in tandem, as it were. So, to what extent, uh, the question is simply the final question, to what extent are some of these policy prescriptions or these solutions or these pragmatic uh, ways forward that you're talking about from the, from the German perspective are relevant also to the European Union as a whole? Some are. Uh, not entirely, but there is a, a sort of a, there's a especially German perspective to this. But you're right; we've put, we've we've extended some of the ideas onto the European scene to the degree that we think uh, the German and the European interests are aligned right. in, in these things. And clearly, when you look at the main problem, the main problem is the same. The European Union, as it is, is an institution that is seen, uh, the, only, uh, the, the only positive sentence I remember from Donald Trump about the European Union is how deftly it is handled in Brexit. <laughs> uh, so uh, so the, the, the general outlook is aligned here. And, and therefore, I would say trade, as I mentioned, is, is clearly uh, a, a European right prerogative. That's the European Union's uh, but energy policy, same thing, um, uh, digital policy, all, all of those things, I think the idea of, of, of differentiating what you have to do 
with Trump, without Trump, around Trump, beyond Trump, how you have to think long-term, and how the long-term informs what you do short-term. Uh, those set of ideas, I think, refer perfectly to the European Union as well. Thank you very much. We have to leave it there. So Thomas Klein and Thank you very much for your time. Thank you.